Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I have something else a little bit different for you today. I have an unusual invitation. Uh, I've been invited to the Aletheia Speech and Debate Group, which meets here at All Saints Presbyterian Church on Tuesday afternoons. This is a, a group of young people who gather together with their parents, or some of their parents, and uh, teachers to work together and study together the arts of public speaking and debating in various formats and so on. And they've asked me to go along and uh, help briefly with their apologetics aspect of their curriculum. And to that end, they've given me four questions that they have asked me to speak about. I guess they're going to be thinking about the substance, what I'm actually going to say in response to this. And perhaps also they'll be trying to learn something either positively or negatively from the way I go about answering them. Anyway, I thought you might like to come with me. So um, the questions they're going to be asking are uh, the following four. If I'm a good person, will I go to heaven? Why does it matter what I believe as long as I'm sincere? Does God forgive really big sins? And then finally, well, this is actually the first question on the list, but I'm planning to deal with it at the end. Will God condemn a person who has never heard about Jesus? So I thought those were kind of interesting questions, and I was certainly uh, delighted and very grateful to receive the invitation to go and address those young people and talk about those topics and try and uh, help them to think through their speech and debate skills. So um, if you're minded to do so, stick around, come downstairs with me. I'm literally right now about to head down there, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, and bye for now. All right, well, thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, as... Um, the lady who introduced me said, whose name is just Cindy, my apologies, uh, said, I'm uh, Steve Jeffrey. I'm one of the pastors here at All Saints, and I hear you every Tuesday. <laughs> when you tiptoe around the upstairs, my office is the one that's got the window on the door, so occasionally I see these faces shuffling past. And anyway, it's lovely to have you here, and it's wonderful to be able to take part in what you're doing. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer, if you don't mind, as we begin, and then I'll tell you what the questions are, if you need a reminder, and then we'll spend a few minutes working through them together. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we're handling holy things as we come to your word today, and contemplating also the sacred responsibility of living as members of the body of Christ, responsible to be like Jesus to the world, and so to speak and to act in a way that commends the gospel and does not discredit it. So please would you help us today as we're reflecting on these questions to prepare well for that task. We pray that you would guard our thoughts, and particularly in the next few minutes, my lips, so that what we hear and what we say is true and clear and helpful and edifying and produces in us more of the godliness and faithfulness for which Jesus died and which is our gift by his spirit poured out into us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was given four questions. I'm going to give you them in order and then I'll tell you what I'm going to do with them. The four questions were, first, will God condemn a person who's never heard about Jesus? Second, if I'm a good person, will I go to heaven? Third, why does it matter what I believe as long as I'm sincere? And then fourth, does God forgive really big sins? I don't know whether there was somebody who's got something they need to disclose who put that last question in. 
Um, let me just make an introductory uh, observation before I jump in and talk about these questions in, in detail. Um, the danger, there's lots of dangers with apologetics. Um, one of the dangers, it seems to me, is that you come to regard what you hear from me as a kind of script that you should be ready to learn and then to repeat uh, as close to verbatim as you can in conversations with people. I often get people who come to me and say, hey, pastor, somebody at my running club or somebody at my gymnastics club or one of my friends from the band I play in asked me this question, what should I say? And strictly speaking, the answer to that question is, I have no idea what you should say. And it's a mistake, a quite serious mistake, to think that there is a kind of stock answer to a question that can be deployed like a kind of theological smart bomb in every sort of situation, you know, sort of fire and forget apologetics missiles. It will just blow anything up, regardless of what it is. Actually, the way that we answer questions has to be sensitive to the people we're talking to and the kinds of questions behind the questions and the relationship that we have with people. And I, I'd just give you one example. Um, uh, a very good friend of mine from back in England. You can tell I'm not from this part of Texas. Um, a very good friend of mine, uh, Richard Kokin, who's the pastor of the first church I ever worked at, phenomenal evangelist. And he uh, was once in a taxi in London with um, a taxi driver, and the taxi driver said, so where are you going? Well, actually, he didn't say that. He said, so where are you going, mate? And uh, anyway, so Richard said, well, I'm going to church. I'm preaching at the church this evening. He said, oh, right. I know a lot about religion. Uh, I'm a Roman Catholic. And the sort of taxi drivers speak like that in certain parts of the East End of London. And so my friend Richard Cokin said, and I quote, Oh, so you know a lot about religion and nothing about forgiveness. And the taxi driver said, Yeah, you're right. A few years later, I had a next door neighbour who was a Roman Catholic. You can see where this might be going, can't you? Now, what's the difference between those situations? The difference is, fairly obviously, that with the Roman Catholic taxi driver, my friend Richard is never going to see him again. So, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> you know, he, I'm never going to speak to you again in my life, mate. Well, no, obviously you're not. I mean, being rude would have been counterproductive and uncalled for, but... Uh, letting rip with both barrels in that kind of situation where you've got nothing to lose is actually probably not a bad idea. But if you've got a next-door neighbour who's a Roman Catholic, you have a longer-term uh, relationship to cultivate. Can you see the difference? And that's just one example of a, a pair of scenarios in which um, you'd respond very differently to a next-door neighbour who's a Roman Catholic than you would to a taxi driver, or you should. So what I'm going to say to you in response to these questions, please don't say, well, Pastor Jeffrey said like this. I should go and say it like that. Um, actually, you might say very different things in trying to communicate the same kinds of content. And I'm going to try and give you the content. But some of this content you won't repeat at all. It's just trying to give you the, the background structure from within which you may be able to answer these questions slightly better. Are you with me? So these questions then, I'm going to leave the first one to last because I think it's harder 
and I want to spend a bit more time on it. And I'm going to try and get through the second, third and fourth more quickly to leave us time to look at question one at the end. So just to remind you, the second and third questions, I think actually these can be grouped together and I'll explain why. If I'm a good person, will I go to heaven? I take it that the, uh, there's a, the trick in the question was obvious to the person who wrote it. Go to heaven is a very, very bad way of describing the Christian hope. There's nowhere in scripture where the word heaven is used to describe the eternal destination of the righteous. Uh, resurrection, raised with Christ. Be in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. Um, uh, be acquitted on the day of judgment. All those are biblical ways of thinking about our eternal hope. Go to heaven at best is a temporary resting place while we await the resurrection and the transformation of this world uh, when Christ returns here and renews and transforms it on resurrection day. But that's a kind of minor quibble, and I know the question and knew that. And we know what it means, don't we? If I'm a good person, will I be saved? And then third question, why does it matter what I believe as long as I'm sincere? The reason why I think these two questions can be grouped together helpfully is because sincerity here is presumably being regarded by the person asking the question as a kind of example of goodness. Isn't it the case that God saves good people? Or more particularly, isn't it the case that God saves people who are really sincere in their beliefs, really sincere in their views. And one of the things we've got to do here is to really feel the potency of the question before we go and sort of bat it away, to try and feel the force with which it comes. And part of the reason it comes with force and apparent credibility, both these questions, is that actually genuinely being saved by Christ and transformed by the Spirit should transform our lives. So it ought to be the case that the most wonderful and lovely and sincere people you know are Christians. And then you can easily slip into the kind of all that glitters is gold fallacy of thinking that, well, because all the most sincere people ought to be Christians, therefore anybody who happens to be sincere, well, surely they'd end up in the same place. Can you see? Well, it's interesting what Scripture says. I'll just give you one example, and you've probably thought of this as soon as the question was asked. Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Like, after all, I'm a good person. Deeply sincere in my commitment to Yahweh. Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we mustn't make the mistake of caricaturing the Pharisees as these kind of evil geniuses, like the James Bond villains stroking the cat, <laughs> planning world domination. These were sincere, committed, devout followers of Yahweh. Now, in some cases, there were blatant hypocritical attitudes, like the Corban thing in Mark 7. You know, if I dedicate this money to the temple so that it can be paid back to me, <laughs> then I don't have to give it to my elderly parents. Neat kind of tax dodge to avoid your scriptural obligations to care for your mum and dad. But it's not the case that all Pharisees can be lumped into this self-righteous hypocrite category. And Jesus told this parable to those who trusted to it that they were righteous and treated others with contempt because they thought, well, I'm so special. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all I get. And there's no reason to doubt that he actually did like fast twice a week and give tithes of all he got. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. You see all the contrasts. He's not close, he's far off. He's not proudly, he just kind of doesn't even dare to raise his gaze. You know, like sometimes you meet people who won't look you in the eye? And sometimes it's just a teenage pathology that you young men need to get over. Like, learn to look a man in the eye and shake his hand, will you? But sometimes it's because a man's spirit has been crushed. You sometimes meet men in their 50s or their 60s who won't look you in the eye. And it's because they have been abused as children and then mocked as teenagers and then uh, lonely as adults. And they just can't believe that anybody would actually want a relationship with them. And every time they've looked at somebody, they've felt kind of crushed. And they get to the point where I'm not looking at anybody. Such it is with this um, tax collector. Standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That is, it's a technical term, uh, which Jesus quite unusually employs here. It's very often employed by Paul the Apostle. But here Jesus uses it uh, to mean having a right standing before God. It's a law court term. This man went home having heard the verdict of the judge that said not guilty. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that, that's just one of those marvellous punchlines, isn't it? Somebody should write a book on um, Jesus' best one-liners. Now, I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Bam! <laughs> this man went home because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved are, is, is, sorry, get my singular and plural mixed up in a room full of rhetoric students. Yikes. Talk about not lift up your eyes to heaven. Um, the difference between those who are declared in the right with God is whether they humbly acknowledge their sin, their fault. So part of the challenge you've got in talking with somebody who says this is, to try to help them to see that it will be far better for them to be honest with God than to put on this kind of front of self-righteousness. And it becomes more tricky if the good person they're talking about is their late non-Christian grandmother from whose funeral they're just returning. Yeah, can, can you see how, okay, I now know the parable I need to blast my friend with. No, you don't. You, know, you now know some of the kind of background theology which could inform your response to your friend. Yeah, you with me? In other words, it's humbly asking God for mercy. And behind this is a theme which we're going to return to again and again, which is the fact that even the best people, even the very best people, know deep down that they're not right. And we'll certainly return to this when we think of um, the, the first question which I put last. Um, and really, establishing the right relationship with the creator of the universe involves acknowledging the truth about the universe, beginning with you. So how, the practical task, really, is to try and help your friends to see 
and actually to feel ourselves, our own emptiness before the Lord. It's why a lot of churches habitually, um, the congregations will kneel to confess their sins. Because it's a gesture of, you never, when else do you kneel apart from when you're going to propose to somebody? <laughs> it's, you're broken before God. So, oh golly, is that the time? Oh well, sorry. Um, does God forgive really big sins? Oh, come on. Um, but don't, um, don't minimise, let's not minimise the, the angst of somebody who asks this. Because this is somebody who's kind of swung to the other end of the pendulum. And it, it feels like, yeah, seriously, but being a Christian is like for good people like you. Like, you, you, you can't be talking, Pastor, you don't know what I've done, seriously. Well, Paul the Apostle writes, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save righteous people. So make sure you get yourself sorted out so that Jesus will accept you. Did anybody notice where I went off line with the quote? Christ Jesus came to the world to save who? 1 Timothy 1, 15. You may answer. Are they told not to answer? <laughs> Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Of whom I am the foremost. How dare you? How dare you usurp the place of the Apostle Paul at the base of the pyramid of all the most vile and despicable sinners in the world whom God is fully able to save to the uttermost if they come to him. You, you do not have the right to declare yourself worse than the one who tried to destroy the bride of the king of the universe. That's why Paul, I'm convinced why Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. It's like, how could we, you imagine the Trinity sort of sitting in eternity, trying to figure out how to make this grace of God thing so obvious to even like Gentiles and Jews, frankly, for that matter. So what could we do? We could find, who should we send as a messenger to the Gentile church? I know, let's find somebody really persuasive, big kind of stage presence, who's got a kind of glittering past and Christian parents. No, I've got a better idea. Let's find a Pharisee who used to persecute the church and actually went to all the effort to travel all the way to Damascus to try and drag men and women and children off the prison to, because they love Jesus. And let's turn him into the apostle to the nations. Then maybe the Gentile churches will get this kind of grace of God thing. Will God forgive really big sins? Yeah, and so Paul parades his own unworthiness. Go and read 2 Corinthians. It's an amazing letter because he's so kind of open and transparent about his abject failing. So this is actually, if your friend is worried by this, then you have some really, really great news. Like, I know somebody even worse than you. <laughs> and he wrote, like, large chunks of the New Testament. So please don't be giving me I'm the worst sinner thing. All right. So that's my 20 minutes up, and I've not even got to the big question. Oh, dear. This, this often happens. People at All Saints realise this. You, yeah, sorry. Anyway. Will God condemn a person who's never heard about Jesus? Okay. Um, I'm going to try and talk for five minutes on this, then we've got five minutes for questions, and I'll stick around a little bit after that, because you may have hoped to have ten minutes of questions, and I don't want to sell you short. Again, please feel the intuitive force 
of the complaint. This one is on a different level to the others. Can it conceivably be just to condemn somebody for something that they had no natural capacity to avoid doing? Can it be just to say to somebody, well, you're going to go to hell forever because you didn't believe in Jesus, when they never even heard his name? Can that conceivably be just? And the answer is, of course it's not. This is one of those wonderful moments where you say exactly the opposite of what all the Christians are thinking. We're all thinking that um, God will condemn somebody who's never heard of Jesus because they didn't put their trust in Jesus. And you're hoping that the pastor's got some clever way of finding a neat trick around this that makes it all make sense. When you study Christian ethics, and some of you are, um, you'll learn that the two criteria for moral culpability, that is to say, the two things that must be true in order for you to be guilty of a sin are knowledge of what you're doing and consent to the action performed. If somebody didn't know that Jesus exists, they cannot conceivably be held liable for not believing in Jesus. But, and there is a mammoth but, there is a footnote to those two ethical criteria. And then there's a biblical, more than a footnote, to fill in the details. If it's the case that somebody should have known, but didn't know, then they're still guilty because they didn't acquire the knowledge that they were morally obligated to acquire. Example, you're driving along the road and you're leaving Fort Worth, you suspect that at some point there's going to be a speed limit sign telling you how fast you may drive. Or maybe you're entering Fort Worth because that's when the speed limits drop. Okay? And so you, so you, you see in the distance just like there on the verge, you see there's a speed limit sign. You can't yet read what it says. And as you get closer, you avert your gaze. You look the other way. So you don't see the sign on the speed limit. And then the officer stops you driving 50 in a 25 zone and says, what were you doing? Didn't you know that you were driving in a 25 mile an hour speed limit zone? And you say, no, officer, I didn't know because I didn't see the sign. What's the officer going to say to you? Thank you. You should have seen the sign. And so you are morally culpable for breaking the speed limit, which you didn't know. You didn't know what the speed limit was because you should have made yourself aware of the speed limit that you were breaking. Right. So here's the question. What is it that everybody in the world should make themselves aware of? Interestingly, it's not something to do with Jesus. Turn to Romans 1. You got your Bibles? Did you bring your Bibles? There is knowledge of God which is universally available to everybody, like the speed limit sign that everybody drives past. The thing you can't escape. What's the one thing that you can't avoid experiencing, seeing or hearing if you live in the world? The world, right? We all live in a a place that's created by the living God. 
And what does Scripture say about the moral obligations that arise from that? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul explains. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, so what's that about? God condemns men for their unrighteousness because they suppress the truth. That is, they hide their eyes from the speed limit sign. In particular, verse 19, what do they hide their eyes from? Look, what can be known, not about speed limits, but what, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for, verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they're without excuse. Now, so that's a critically important two or three verses. Do you see the logic of what Paul's saying? Everybody lives in the world, and the world has God's fingerprints all over it. So what everybody ought to do is to be able to see in the things that have been made the eternal power and divine nature of the creator. And so what we're looking for, if we're looking for somebody who, let's say the, the, the hypothetical Eskimo who's never heard of Jesus or Amazonian jungle dweller, if there are any people left in the Amazon after all the trees have been burned down, but not all have been burned down, um, who haven't heard of Jesus... What ought they to have perceived and what ought they to have done about it? Well, since the creation of the world, they should have perceived the eternal power and divine nature of God. And Paul goes on in verse 21, 22 and 23 to explain what everybody without exception does with that knowledge of God, the so-called natural knowledge of God that's revealed in creation. Just look with me. Though they knew God... There's a, there's a kind of inescapability to this knowledge of God. You can't not see the world. They did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is to say, in one way or another, mentally and practically in their lives, everybody has seen something of the true God in the things that he's made and fail to respond rightly to that. Now, the failure takes different forms. Here, it's generalised in the most broad terms possible. They didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. And then it talks about the idolatry of the ancient world and so on. And we have our modern idolatries that people are guilty of. Modern equivalents of the, the, the gods of stone and wood and iron and so on. But what Paul is saying here is that, first, everybody has seen the living God in creation. Secondly, astonishingly, everybody suppresses that knowledge of God and fails to honour him as they should. So, actually, when you come back to this question, um, will God condemn a person who has never heard about Jesus? Yes, but not for not believing in Jesus rather for failing, as everybody fails, to acknowledge God in the way that he's revealed himself in the world. And here it's really interesting. If you actually ask people, you, you can imagine on the last day, right, like the conversation, um, when some, somebody's trying to untangle what it is they knew, how, how was it that this knowledge of God was found in them? 
Ima imagine asking the question, and you could ask this to your friend when you're talking to them about this. Um, have you ever failed to live in a way that you think meets God's standards? It's like, well, people are going to have a hard time ask, answering that question. So ask an easier question. Okay, have you ever failed to live in a way that meets your own standards? Have you ever done anything which, in truth, you know, it, it falls below what you'd hope for from yourself? You, you know in your heart of hearts, you look back on what you did with a certain degree of shame. You know you've not lived up to the standard of, what does Paul say, righteousness that you'd want to hold other people to. Do you think God's going to hold people to a higher or a lower standard than that? Truth be told, uh, everybody apart from people who are locked up for their own safety knows that they've at times failed to live up to even our own low standards of what counts as integrity and truthfulness and honesty. We don't have to get somebody to admit that they've sinned against God. We can just get somebody to the point of recognising they've kind of sinned against their own standards. And I think you'll struggle to find people who won't acknowledge that. Most people, in their heart of hearts, after a couple of cups of coffee, or adults in the evening after a couple of glasses of wine, they'll acknowledge, yeah, yeah. There have been times, there have been times when I've not, done what I ought to have done. And that's all that needs to be said. If somebody has failed according to their own standards, how much more have we all failed according to God's? And how much more, therefore, do we need the only safe of the world, the Lord Jesus? So, some raw material, perhaps to help you to um, deal with some of those questions. I've run rather into the time that was proposed for questions. Do you want to see if people have questions now? What would you like to do? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, um, yeah, if you need to depart, please do. And um, I apologise for running straight into your Q&A time and swallowing it all up. But we've got a couple of hands up. So, Kaylee, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. Yeah, good question. So one of the um, one of the questions that sometimes arises in in relation to will God forgive really big sins is what about the so-called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's mentioned here in Mark, uh, sorry, in Matthew twelve. It's mentioned elsewhere in Mark's Gospel and so on in the Synoptics. Um, Matthew twelve thirty one. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And so the question is, well. What is the blasphemy against the spirit? Because there's one sin that won't be forgiven. Um, and this, <laughs> thank you, Kaylee. This um, opens up quite a large debate about what the nature of this sin is. I can cut to what I think is easily the most persuasive answer for you, just to try and shine some light through the fog. Uh, the blasphemy against the spirit is the kind of resistance to the spirit 
which refuses the Spirit's call to repentance. First John says that it's the Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And therefore the Spirit of God is the one who draws us to Christ and grants us the gift of repentance and faith. So if you blaspheme against the Spirit, which in Mark's Gospel is equated with attributing to Jesus, sorry, attributing to Satan the work of Christ, then effectively what you're doing is you're resisting the possibility of faith and repentance right from the outset. Now, persistent unrepentance is a sin that won't be forgiven, kind of by definition. If Jesus will forgive all those who truly repent, then somebody who doesn't repent is counting themselves out, so to speak, of that category of those who can be forgiven. In other words, this isn't a sin that you should go home and worry, oh goodness, have I committed the sin that leads to death? Have I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Maybe I did it once when I was sleepy. I woke up in the middle of the night and accidentally blasphemed against the Spirit, then went back to sleep again, but I can't be saved now. That's not how you should be thinking. This is an ongoing attitude of rebellion and unrepentance towards God. So that doesn't take you through the the gritty details of why that's how this should be understood, but I think it's at least an answer that helps make sense of it. Thank you. Any other questions? Oh, my apologies. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. What about aborted babies? Jeepers, you have the questions, don't you, you guys? (laughs) Okay. Um, Scripture teaches that all children of believers, come to unbelievers in a second, who die in infancy are saved. Infancy including before birth. Notice the contrast, for example, between David's reaction to the death of the son born to him by Bathsheba before the birth of Solomon, when he mourns and weeps while the baby is still alive, and then the baby dies, and his men are too afraid to go to him, like, what are you going to do? He'll be so distraught. They tell him the child has died, and he's like, okay. And he gets up and goes and washes his face and has breakfast. And they're like, what's going on, David? And, And David says... Um, he will not come to me, I will go to him. All he knows about that child is that he's his child, he's a covenant child. And so he has confidence on that basis that God's grace extends to him because uh, Genesis 17, 7 and 8, God is God to us and to our children. That's the promise to Abraham, which is then reaffirmed in uh, Acts 2, um, their Pentecost after Peter's speech. Um, what should we do? Like, oh, we just crucified the Messiah. That was a bit foolish. Yeah, it was. What should we do? And Peter says, well, repent and be baptised for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It's a reference to Genesis 17, which is fulfilled in the promise of the Spirit, because Galatians 3, the gospel preached before and to Abraham, is fulfilled in the gift of the Spirit. So what that means is any believer who loses a child, and most families will through miscarriage, can be assured that they will see those children again. What then do we say about the children of unbelievers who die in those tragic circumstances? Um, Here there are fewer explicit biblical resources. But there's one overwhelming consideration that I think is worth bearing in mind. God promises to um, 
visit judgment for iniquity on the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but to show steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember that in Exodus and elsewhere. There's a kind of asymmetry, in other words, between God's commitment to demonstrate his justice in punishing sin and his commitment to show grace in saving his people. For what it's worth, this is one of the background considerations to a post-millennial eschatology. That is an optimistic vision of the number of people who will finally be saved. If you think God's grace lasts for a thousand generations and his judgment lasts for three or four, well, that's a place to start, isn't it? Now, what that means is it's not that in God his attributes are somehow divided and chopped up. It is in the created order his attributes are manifested in different proportions. God loves to show grace, loves to show grace, but he doesn't rejoice over the death of a single sinner. So where does this leave us with unborn children? It's like, or children who are very young, even of unbelievers. It's very, very hard to imagine any reason why God would want to act in judgment against such a child because it wouldn't in any obvious way be a demonstration of justice. Even the doctrine of original sin, which establishes that we're all guilty in Adam, doesn't really deal with the issue because, as you know, in Scripture it is sins done in the body that are um, called to account at the last judgment. It's not that we're not guilty in Adam. We are. Good job we're in Christ, right? But because we're on, on the last day, it is always our acts of unrighteousness that are called to account. So there's a, there's, a, there's a subtle nuance there. right? So it's really hard to imagine what good purpose God could have imagined before the creation of the world in condemning a child, even of an unbeliever, to eternal perdition. But it's very easy to imagine why he might want to show grace in those circumstances. Doesn't, isn't it the case that God loves to show grace to the most vulnerable, the most unable to help themselves, the most neglected, the, the ones who are even neglected by their own parents. It, it's, it's, it's very, very hard for me to think of a, a single good warrant for God displaying justice in condemning an un, unborn child of an unbeliever. I can't. Can I categorically exclude the possibility? No, I can't. But that, that very uncertainty, I think, is also salutary because the uncertainty, what would we say? The uncertainty of life is part and parcel of life as an unbeliever. We, we ought not to expect all the, neat, all the loose ends to be neatly tied up uh, in relation to the world of unbelief. It's not that I'd ever have any grounds to say, I think that unborn child is going to hell. Quite the contrary, I wouldn't. But I wouldn't be able to say with quite the same covenantal absoluteness that I'll be able to say to all the ladies here who've had a miscarriages, which will be about a third of them, all those who have childbearing age and married, at least a third probably, that you'll see your little child again. So does that answer your question? It's, it's like a... It's a really interesting question. We actually had it earlier this week in the theology class here at, um, at the Oaks Tutorials, and it's a tangled mess of a question, but I think if you work through all the implications, it actually has quite a happy answer. So, yeah, thank you.
Uh, how much longer do you want to go on? Do you want to keep going? These guys? Kaylee had her hand up again, but then she often does that. <laughs> do you want to? Yeah, go ahead, Kaylee. Yeah, that, so that's in um, the prophet Ezekiel. Um, how long have you got? Um, so, so it's an established principle that um, uh, how God deals with people is affected by how he has dealt with their parents. That's just like a standard thing in Scripture. Now, what happens in the book of Ezekiel when Ezekiel is prophesying to the Israelites in exile is he's trying to say to them, look, don't you start saying that, oh, we got here because of our parents' sin, which is true, therefore we can't do anything. No, that's a mistake. He's saying to you, you, by God's grace, can break this chain of the sins of the fathers being suffered by the children. It would have been natural for the Israelites to say, well, our fathers sinned for many generations. We are exiled to Babylon, and here we are, and there's nothing we can do about it. And Ezekiel was like, no, repent for crying out loud, and then you'll be restored to the land. And let me give you a vision of the temple that you'll see when you get there. And you've got Ezekiel 40 to 48, this glorious vision of a temple, which is not the Jerusalem temple. It's the temple that now exists where Jesus is. You with me? So that, in other words, the Ezekiel text isn't some kind of generalizable principle. The generalizable principle is actually the covenant continuity principle. I'll be God to you and to your children after you. A thousand generations of those who love me. We haven't had a thousand generations yet. Like we've got loads in store of God's grace to be shown to the world. So. But yeah, thank you for that. Because that's a, yeah, it's good to raise that text. And there's some more work to do on that, but you can see where we go. We're done. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.